Good morning, everybody. It's great to have you with us today. I want to welcome all of you here, whether you're in the room or you're watching online. I hope you've had a good week. If you're a Tar Heel fan like me, it's been a pretty good week. If you're a Peacock fan, it's been a great week. We'll see what happens tonight. Uh, I am happy to be back at Plum Creek this morning. Uh, last week, I spent several days at a retreat specifically for ministers. It was an amazing experience. I'll have to tell you some stories later about that. And I want to say thanks to Jimmy for preaching while I was gone. I got to listen to his sermon online, and he preached a strong message. Now, today, we're wrapping up this sermon series called Kingdom Stories. Uh, we've been looking at some of the parables that Jesus told uh, specifically, we've been looking at parables about the kingdom of God. And most of you know, this is our big theme here at Plum Creek in 2022. We're focusing on God's kingdom, and we're seeing how God can use us to help advance His kingdom. Now, if you happen to be new around here, I want to give you a definition that we've been using. We've said the kingdom of God is any place where God's rule and His reign have truly begun. So where is that? Where is God ruling and reigning right now? Is that in heaven? Well, absolutely. Up in heaven, nobody is pushing back against God's authority. But down here on earth, it's a different story. <laughs> there is widespread rebellion against God down here. We're surrounded by sin and evil and death. But one day, God will show up. And he will destroy every one of his enemies. Every wrong will be made right. We look forward to that, but that day hasn't happened yet. And so we keep praying these words from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. And with this prayer, we're asking God to bring up there, down here. And the cool thing is, we get to be a part of that. Because God wants to use his church to build his kingdom here and now. And with this in mind, we've been asking a certain question at Plum Creek this year. The question is, if we follow wherever God leads, how much good could we do for his kingdom here in 2022? Uh, that's why I'm excited about some of the things that we've been doing. God has led us to several kingdom-building projects. Uh, some of these projects are making a difference uh, on the other side of the world, in places like Nepal. But we also know that God wants to use us to make a difference right here in our community. Uh, one example of that is the week of serving coming up in less than two weeks. From April 9th through the 16th, we're going to be out in our community serving others. And the goal is for every person in our church family to serve in at least one project over the course of this week. If you haven't signed up yet, it's very easy to do. Just go to plumcreek.org. You'll see a list of serving opportunities. Uh, all kinds of things. Uh, you might serve a meal at the Hosea House Soup Kitchen. Uh, you might volunteer with our community Easter egg hunt. Uh, you might bake cookies to give to our neighbors. Uh, there are all kinds of options. And I love this idea because we're sending a message to northern Kentucky. We are here to serve. We want to follow the example of Jesus. He came to serve, not to be served. 
So we got some exciting things happening over the next few weeks, um, but I'm also excited about the last parable in this sermon series. Uh, Today we're going to look at a story about a wedding banquet, and I'll tell you ahead of time, this one is a little strange. Uh, You may even find it disturbing. Uh, I've never actually preached through this parable before, but you know what? I'm not going to avoid the difficult parts of Scripture. I I think it's important that we look at passages that are challenging, maybe even disturbing, because God will use these challenging passages to, to communicate something important to us. So let's get to it. Like I said, this parable is about a wedding banquet, and the basic plot is easy to understand. It's the story of a king who invites a large group of people to come to a big feast to celebrate his son's wedding. This story got me thinking back to my own wedding. Back in 2005, uh, my wife and I, we dug into one of our closets this week, and we found some of our wedding pictures. I'll, I'll show you just a couple. I've got one of the two of us walking into our reception. Look at those kids there. Uh, Now, if you don't uh, recognize me, I'm the one on the right. I think I've changed a little over 16 years. Uh, But I have some great memories of our reception. Uh, We were surrounded by family and friends. Uh, We had some great food. I especially enjoyed the cheese grits. Uh, This was down in Savannah, Georgia. But one of the highlights of the party had to be the chocolate fountain. Now, this was back when chocolate fountains were kind of new on the scene, and, and people were just amazed by this. They walked up and they were like, oh, what manner of sorcery is this? And we were like, ah, welcome to paradise, my friends. But let's get back to the parable. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. And of course, you can always read the verses up on the screen, but I do encourage you to use your own Bible as we go through this passage. But here we go, Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, I know we just started, but we have to pause here. Because verse 1 says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables. So, who is them? Who is Jesus talking to here? Well, that's an important question, so let's look at this. If you flip back to the previous chapter, Matthew 21, we see that we are at the beginning of the final week of Jesus. We're just a few days before he goes to the cross. And here in Matthew 21, there are several significant events that take place. First, you've got the triumphal entry. That's when Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and crowds of people just welcome him, celebrate him as a hero. Actually, more than a hero, as a king. They're shouting things like, Hosanna to the son of David. And if you know your Old Testament prophecy, you know what they're talking about there. Because the prophet said the Messiah would come from the family line of David. So when the crowds say, Hosanna to the son of David, they're actually saying, Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah. Please save us. And of course, Jesus doesn't correct them. 
because they're absolutely right. Later in the chapter, there is another well-known event that takes place. Jesus walks into the temple courts in Jerusalem, and he sees all these people buying and selling. They've turned this house of prayer into a den of thieves, and Jesus is furious. He starts flipping over tables, flipping over benches. He makes this big scene. He's basically cleaning house, and not surprisingly, there's a certain group of people who don't like what Jesus is doing here. The Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They didn't like it when people called Jesus the Messiah, and they definitely didn't like it when Jesus went into the temple and kind of went beast mode on them. The Bible says these religious leaders were indignant. So they confront Jesus and ask him a question. They say, who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? In other words, who died and made you king? Which is kind of funny, of course, because they're actually talking to the king of kings. But Jesus does what he often does. He says, I'm not going to answer that question. Instead, I want to tell you a few stories. And from there, he goes into three different parables. In parable number one, Jesus talks about a father with two sons. This father goes to his sons and he says, boys, I got some chores for you to do. And son number one, he's, he, he's <laughs> kind of belligerent. He says, dad, I don't want to do the chores. But then later he changes his mind and he actually goes and does the work. Now the second son starts out well. He says, sure, dad, whatever you say. But then he changes his mind in the opposite direction and he doesn't do the work. That's the story, short and sweet. But then Jesus gives the interpretation. He makes it very clear that this parable is about those religious leaders. He says, you guys, you're like that second son. You talk a good game, but you haven't followed through. You haven't submitted yourselves to God's authority. And because of that, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering God's kingdom ahead of you. So that's not going to go over well, is it? But then Jesus tells a second parable. This one was even more confrontational. I won't go into detail here, but this is the bottom line. Jesus tells the religious leaders that the kingdom of God has been taken away from them and given to a different group of people who will accept him as the Messiah. So how do the Jewish leaders respond to these stories? Well, if you look at the end of Matthew 21, we see this. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Now, from the other gospel books, we know that these leaders were plotting to kill Jesus by this point. Like I said, he's, he's just a few, way, a few days from going to the cross. And that takes us right back to where we began. Jesus tells that third parable. He speaks to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And I love this because Jesus is not intimidated by these guys at all. He's like, oh, I'm not done yet. I have one more story for you. Once upon a time, a certain king prepared a wedding banquet for his son. 
Now, this is another one of those parables where it's fairly easy to figure out the symbolism. Let's go through this together. First, who does the king represent? The king represents God the Father, right? And what about the Son? Well, the Son represents Jesus, the Son of God. And this is a theme that shows up repeatedly in the Bible. The Messiah is often symbolized as a bridegroom. And if that's the case, what about the banquet itself? Well, we need to understand, in the Jewish culture, a wedding banquet was one of the most joyful occasions in life. These parties would often last up to a week. And the Bible frequently uses a wedding banquet to symbolize the fellowship between the Messiah and his people. You could think of it as this big celebration that takes place in the kingdom of God. It's a celebration that lasts for eternity. And by the way, this is not some abstract idea. This feast is actually going to happen. And whether you realize it or not, this is where you want to be. This is where you were created to be. So it sounds like this is going to be a happy story, right? Well, not so fast. Unfortunately, a lot of people won't make it to this banquet. Verse 3. The king sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, I want you to notice here, uh, these people had already been invited. At some point, the king sent out a save-the-date kind of invitation, and now the, the banquet is ready to begin. So the messengers go out to the invited guests, and they say, hey guys, it's time, come on over, dinner's on the table. But then we get this weird plot twist. The guests refuse to come. So what's the symbolism here? Well, some of you probably know. The invited guests represent the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. He had set them apart. The Messiah was born into this family of people. And they were the first ones to be invited to enter the kingdom of God. But then we find out they don't accept that invitation. Over hundreds of years, God tried to let them know they were invited. He sent prophets over the centuries. But they didn't want to listen to those prophets. Just like the invited guests in this story. They refused to come to the feast. But this king doesn't give up. He sends out more messengers. And this time, they describe just how great this banquet is going to be. Verse 4, Then he sent out some more servants and said, Hey, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Seriously, guys, you don't want to miss this dinner. We are serving nothing but the best. No jello molds. No turkey bacon, no soy burgers. I'm telling you, we're talking about the best steak you've ever had. For you vegetarians, this is going to be the best tossed salad you've ever had, which I can't relate to, but I don't want to leave anyone out here. But this, these enticing descriptions, they're still not enough. The invited guests just blew off those messengers. Actually, they did more than that. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Then the rest 
seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Okay, you see what I mean? This is just bizarre. I I can understand the group that acts like they're too busy, but I can't understand these people who kill the messengers. I mean, seriously, imagine this scenario. Let's say you log on to Facebook or Instagram or, or whatever, and then you see this couple that you know, they just got engaged. And then you tell yourself, if anybody tries to invite me to their wedding, I will literally beat them up and kill them. It's crazy, right? And and remember, Jesus is telling this story. He's making it up. So why would he make it so extreme? Well, it's extreme because this parable is about real life. In the Old Testament, The people actually did murder the prophets. And in just a few days, Jesus will be murdered too. The story is crazy because what actually happened was crazy. As the parable goes on, this king will not stand for these despicable crimes. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So the killers get the punishment that they deserve. The soldiers basically wipe out that first guest list. But the story's not over. Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. The king is like, Hey, my son is still getting married. And the banquet is still ready. I am bound and determined that I will commemorate this occasion. I will honor my son. So he's not going to cancel this party. And he rounds up some of those messengers who were not murdered. And in verse 10, the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. So finally, the venue is packed. The party has begun. But did you notice something a little odd here? Look at, look at who's on the new guest list. We've got some good and decent people, but we also have bad people. What's Jesus telling us here? Well, hold on to that thought, because the, the next part of this story might be the strangest part of all. Verse 11 But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Okay, we find out there was a dress code at this party. And you might think the king would be lenient here. After all, those servants just pulled people in off the streets. They hadn't been planning to attend a fancy banquet that day. And I'm sure many of them couldn't even afford wedding clothes. So the king should cut this guy some slack, right? Actually, he did the opposite. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And scene. That's the end of this parable. And do you see why this might be disturbing to some people? We want to think of God as merciful and loving. 
And the Bible does say that. God is full of mercy and love. But if the king here represents God, how is this merciful? You kind of feel for the guy, don't you? Yes, he violated the dress code, but did you really have to tie him up and throw him into the darkness? Well, I have to admit, I really wrestled with this story this week. But the more I studied, the more I saw that Jesus may be communicating a powerful truth here. It's actually amazing, even beautiful. So let's dig a little deeper. First, it is true the the badly dressed man was not worthy to be at the banquet. But that's not why the king rejected him. And how do we know that? Well, we know it because the room was full of unworthy guests. Remember, there were good people and bad people at this party. And like I said, I'm sure many of them didn't show up with the right clothes. So I'm going to speculate and read between the lines for a second. There's uh, something that we should know about the culture of that time. A host of a wedding would often provide clothes for the guests. And Jesus doesn't specifically say that this king provided clothes for his guests, but it's certainly possible. And if that was the case, our badly dressed man just refused to put on the clothes that were given to him. And the the problem was not that he showed up poorly dressed. The problem was that he wouldn't put on what the king provided. Now again, I'm reading between the lines here. But if this is what Jesus is communicating, it lines up perfectly with a metaphor that shows up all over the Bible. It's a clothing metaphor. Here's the basic idea. First, I need to point out one more symbol in this parable. Uh, I talked about that first round of invited guests. Who do they represent? They represent the nation of Israel. But what about the second round of guests? Well, they symbolize everyone who does accept God's invitation to enter his kingdom. But there's there's a big problem here. Just like the guests in this parable, none of us deserve to enter God's kingdom. None of us are dressed right. And why is that? Well, it's because of our sin. We like to think of ourselves as good people, but the Bible says all of us are sinners. Go back to the Old Testament, to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, the prophet says, all of us, you and me and Isaiah too, all of us have become like one who is unclean and our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Not just our sins, our righteous acts. So you see it? Even on our best days, our level of goodness doesn't come close to comparing to God's perfection, His righteousness. It's like we're walking around wearing filthy rags. And we can't clean ourselves up. We also can't afford anything better. And for that reason, we don't deserve to enter God's kingdom. He's perfect. We're sinful and corrupt. And if he welcomed our sin into his presence, he wouldn't be perfect anymore. So what do we deserve? We deserve to be thrown outside and excluded from God's kingdom. That's the bad news. But the story's not over. The prophet Isaiah has something else to say. 
This is very cool. Check out Isaiah 61, verse 10. He says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. Why? For He has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. Isaiah is telling us something amazing here. He used to wear those filthy rags, but somehow God dressed him up in the clothing of salvation, in a robe of righteousness. And you know what this is? It's the gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom. It's the message of grace. It's the gift that only comes through Jesus. Like I said, this clothing metaphor, it shows up all over Scripture. Let's read uh, the, at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. In Revelation 7, verse 9, the Apostle John sees a vision of the future. And John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here we have this huge crowd of people. They made it to the party. And they do meet the dress code. They're not wearing filthy rags. They, they have white robes. But how did their clothes get so clean? Well, check out verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, John, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And John answered, Sir, you know. <laughs> and he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this is the coolest thing ever. Jesus is the only way to be washed clean. His sacrifice on the cross made it possible for us to wear the robe of righteousness. You can't get into the kingdom by trying to be good enough. You can never be good enough on your own. But God has invited us to this banquet despite the fact that we're not good enough. Salvation is a free gift. But there's something we need to understand. It is free to attend the banquet of God's kingdom. But your ticket came at a very high cost. Like I said, all of us have sinned against God. All of us wear these filthy rags spiritually. And when you sinned, you racked up a debt that you could never repay. And the penalty, the payment that we deserve is death. But God loved us too much to let us experience this death, which is eternal death in hell. He loved us too much and Jesus went to the cross willingly and He paid that penalty with His own life. So Jesus, he, he made it possible for us to attend the party. And if you truly understand what Jesus has done for you, you will never forget that you don't deserve to be at the banquet. You will never forget the price that Jesus paid so that you could enter God's kingdom. I heard somebody quote a famous preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Apparently, Spurgeon was preaching through this passage, and he said, it's always good to have beggars at your banquet. And why would that be? 
Well, the rich and the powerful, they're not easy to impress. They're used to fancy dinners. But beggars are amazed by every little thing. They're like, have you seen these dinner rolls? They are incredible. And, and, and here comes the turkey. This is unbelievable. I can't believe I'm here right now. I just can't believe it. That is the kind of joy and gratitude we should have when we've been washed clean by the blood of Christ and invited and welcomed into the kingdom. So, we've heard a good story this morning, but now, what do we do with it? Well, I have two possible action steps for you, and every one of us needs to take at least one of these two steps. You either need to accept the invitation or extend the invitation. First, I want to say a word to anyone who hasn't yet given your life to Christ. I want you to know this king is real. And right now, he's preparing an amazing feast for you. And, and we don't even have words to describe how great it will be. We do have parables and descriptions in the Bible. But in 1 Corinthians 2, the, the Apostle Paul says, No eye has seen. No ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. This banquet will be infinitely better than any party in the history of parties. And it's going to last forever. And you are invited. But the sad truth is, some people do reject this invitation. It's like the people in this parable. Some didn't want to come. Others didn't care enough to come. They, they thought they were too busy. They couldn't be bothered. Others will show up at the feast, but they won't be able to stay because they're not dressed right. They thought they could be good enough on their own. Let me tell you, though, you don't want to reject this invitation. If you reject the king, you will face the wrath of the king. It's not fun for me to say that, but it's true. So, if you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, if you've never accepted that invitation to be washed clean, to put on that robe of righteousness and come to the feast, the king wants me to tell you that you're invited. So how do you accept? Well, Scripture is pretty clear on that. When you accept his invitation, you respond in several ways. First, you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Second, you declare that Jesus is your Lord, your master. You make him your king. Then you repent. You turn away from your old life. You leave that sin behind. And finally, you're baptized into Christ. And you know, in Scripture, baptism is not some optional add-on for people who decide to follow Jesus. Baptism is this moment that marks the end, the death of your old life and the beginning of a new life in Christ. You're buried in water, just like Jesus was buried in the tomb. And you rise up in the same way that Jesus rose from the dead. This is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. Listen to this. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There it is again. Clothed yourself with Christ. I love it. So this may be your action step today. If you've never made this decision, I urge you, accept the invitation. 
But for those of you who have already taken that step, God wants you to be like the messengers in this parable. He wants you to extend the invitation. And there are lots of ways to do this, but the reality is it begins with prayer. In this year of the kingdom, uh, we've been using a prayer calendar that gives us something specific to pray about every day. On Thursdays, uh, we're encouraged to pray for at least five friends or neighbors or relatives who, as far as you know, don't have a relationship with Jesus at this point. I hope you've been using this calendar, but uh, we also wanted to put another tool in your hands. A couple weeks ago, you might have heard me talk about a high-five card that I've kept in my wallet for almost 10 years. And the idea of this card is pretty simple. On the back, you just write down the names of five people you are praying for. Five people that God has put on your heart. People that you want to see make it to this banquet. Now, we've put these cards in seats all over the room. And if your seat doesn't have one, I'm I'm sure you can find one nearby. Um, But please take one of these with you today and use it. Pray for someone Pray for the people that God puts on your heart on a regular basis. If uh, you're watching online, you can go to plumcreek.org connect and, and ask for a card, and we'd be glad to send you one. Once you have it, you just put it in your wallet or put it in a place where you'll see it regularly, and it will be a reminder to pray. So extending this invitation, it begins with prayer, but it doesn't end there. Because sooner or later, God gives you opportunities to reach out. In fact, we have a great opportunity coming up very soon. Uh, We talk about this a lot. Easter. People are more open to coming to church at Easter. So let's be intentional. Let's invite people to hear the good news about Jesus. And I need to add something here. When you invite someone and they show up, Don't hand them over to staff. Stay actively involved. You can have a conversation after service. Say, hey, what did you think about that? Or while you're still here, take them back to the Connection Cafe. Don't send them. Go with them. Or or you can invite them to the Discover Lunch and go with them. Our next Discover is a week from today, April 3rd. And then we'll have another one on May 1st, just two weeks after Easter. Like I said, there are lots of ways to extend this invitation. Maybe you you just look for the chance to tell your story of how Jesus has changed your life. But this is one of the biggest ways that we can make a difference for God's kingdom. We can let God use us to lead people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So do you know what your action step is today? And are you ready to take it? Let's pray. Father, I I thank you so much for your word. Even the the challenging parts, I know you're speaking to us. And Lord, it's pretty simple. Uh, We either need to accept your invitation or extend your invitation. And I pray that we will not take this lightly, what you have called us to do. I pray that you'll make it clear what you're saying to us. And that will follow where, you're, where you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.